we are starting a new series. Is my, did I turn it on? I wasn't sure if I hit the right button or not. We are starting a new series this morning. We finished our survey through, through uh, Genesis and then, and then Exodus because it's so foundational uh, to, um, to the New Testament. Uh, we ignore the Old Testament to our own peril. Uh, and, uh, and it gives such a, a picture of New Testament truth. Uh, and so it was important to, uh, to go over those, those foundational books of, uh, of Genesis and Exodus. Uh, but we're moving on to something else this morning. This is going to be a 15-part a series on, uh, on 1 John. So this morning, we start our new series. It is likely that all three epistles of John were sent at the same time, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, don't be confused. There's the Gospel of John. Uh, if you hit that in your Bible, keep going. All right, it's, uh, it's towards the end of the, of the New Testament. Although none of the three letters contain the name of the author in the uh, introduction like typical epistles would contain, the early church fathers attributed all three letters to the authorship of John the Apostle. There is internal evidence that the author does have what we like to call apostolic authority, which is the, the authority of an apostle. Uh, the time of this writing is, is late. Um, uh, it's, it's, John wrote his, his, uh, his gospel and, and these three epistles and then and then the book of Revelation, uh, probably somewhere around 90 A.D., uh, in that within a few years. Um, and, and so this is one of the, the later writings of the New Testament that, uh, that you will find. Now, John was the only apostle to die from natural causes. Uh, and once again, church history re records that John reached old aged and lived close to the end uh, of the... Uh, uh, well, technically, it's the, the first century, close to the end of the first century. The rest of the apostles were martyred before these letters were written and distributed. Uh, and so by process of elimination with, the, with what is stated in 1 John, uh, at this point, in this time frame, A.D. 90 to 93, uh, the only apostle still alive is, is John. The rest have, had, had, been, had been murdered before, uh, and... Uh, and John was the only one to die of natural causes. That doesn't mean John's life was easy. Church history also tells us that at different points, John was boiled in oil uh, and, uh, uh, and other horrible things done to him uh, for the sake of the gospel. Uh, but he was the only one to, to die from natural causes. Now, 1 John does not say to whom the letters were written, like typical apostles or typical uh, epistles do. Uh, most scholars believe that John was centered in present-day Turkey toward the end of his life uh, near Ephesus. Uh, the book of Revelation was written specifically to seven churches in Turkey uh, centering around the city of Ephesus. They were the seven cities on the mail route. Uh, and uh, in, in Revelation, they, kinda, they go in order uh, as to who would, what church, what city would receive their, their letter, would receive the, the letter of, of Revelation first and the uh, information in it. Uh, so it is very likely that 1 John also followed this mail route and was distributed to the same seven churches that were addressed in the book of Revelation. And, and from Ephesus, um, there were a lot of churches planted. Um, 
Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He spent over three years in Ephesus. And normally for Paul, he was only able to stay three weeks in a particular location before they ran him out with pitchforks and clubs. Uh, but in Ephesus, he was able to stay there for, for a long time uh, and started a, uh, a seminary there, so to speak. And uh, people would come from all over, hear his teaching, and then go back home. And so um, a lot of churches were, were started uh, from the ministry of Paul, not Paul going to those locations, but, but people from those locations would come to Paul, uh, be trained, and then, and then go back home and, and plant churches. Uh, but the thought is, is that, John, this was probably a letter meant to be distributed uh, to the, the churches in and around Ephesus on, on the mail route. Now, I have been referring to 1 John as an epistle, which means letter. It is but it isn't at the same time. Uh, epistles are, are typically very informational. First uh, John certainly has much information, but it also has a poetic quality. Uh, it's much more poetic than, than say, Paul's letters. Um, it reads more like a prose than an instructional letter. Uh, most scholars agree that outlining First John is very difficult. Uh, and so if you go and, and look at what different... Uh, um, scholars or, or theologians have outlined 1 John, you'll not find two alike. Uh, it's very, very difficult. Uh, John uses imagery and emotive language to communicate important truths. Uh, the best way that I heard 1 John described is that it is a poetic sermon. Right? It's a poetic sermon. Now, are you ready for uh, a big word? Uh, some of you uh, already, already are familiar with this big word for others. Uh, oh, you're going to sound so smart uh, at lunch after the service this morning when you talk to the, the waiter. Uh, accurate Bible interpretation uses a normal, here's the big word, hermeneutic. You like that word? It uses a, a normal hermeneutic. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, we used to say a literal hermeneutic, uh, but critics that deny the truth of the Bible intentionally misrepresented what we meant by a literal hermeneutic. Uh, what is meant, what is meant though, by a normal hermeneutic? Well, hermeneutic, that's a way of saying that, uh, uh, well, it relates to the meaning of texts and the ways in which texts are understood. A hermeneutic is the way in which we interpret any language, but here we are specifically talking about interpreting the Bible. In language, every, every day you're using a hermeneutic to understand what is being said to you, right? What is being said to you. Let me give you a for instance. Here in the South, if a lady says, oh, bless her heart, <laughs> that has a different meaning, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, in Michigan, if somebody said that, when you never heard that, but if somebody said that, you might actually think they meant it. Uh, in, in, uh, in a certain way. But, uh, uh, and then up in the Midwest, we have, we have something called Minnesota nice. All right, Minnesota nice. Minis if you look at somebody had decorated a house and you think it is the ugliest thing you have ever seen in your life, uh, Minnesota nice would never allow you to say anything other than good things, right? So you would look at it and you would go, oh, ain't that something? <laughs> All right, that's Minnesota nice. And you know that when you're, when you're there. You, you interpret it naturally, because that's how you grew up. 
Uh, but you go someplace else, and people say things and you might not understand. Try being a Yankee coming down to South Louisiana. I still, uh, we don't know. We don't know a lot of things. Uh, but we use a hermeneutic to understand all the time. Uh, now, so a hermeneutic is the way in which we interpret any language, but here we're talking about the Bible. We should try to understand the Bible in its normal or plain meaning. It's normal or plain meaning. To correctly interpret the Bible, we must interpret it historically, grammatically, and contextually. We are trying to answer the question, what did the author mean when he wrote these words? All right. What did the author mean when he wrote these words? My freshman year in high school, we were going over a poetry section in English, and we were reading a poem, and uh, the teacher said, what do you what do you uh, think this, this means? And the student raised their hand and they said something. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. I see that. Yep, that's great. Uh, somebody else. And another student raised their hand and they said something completely different. And she said, oh, yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. And then I raised my hand and I said, they said this, they said this, they're completely different, and you said they're both right. I'm confused. And she said, oh, poetry works that way. And I said, oh, and then I didn't say this out loud, but in my head I said, oh, I hate poetry. <laughs> right? And I found out later, that's not true. If the author of the poem says, that's not what I meant, then it's not a valid interpretation. Right? Uh, and so uh, here we're trying to figure out, what, would, what did John mean when he wrote this? If we come up with an answer and John said, that's not what I meant, then it's an invalid interpretation. Uh, that's why in Bible studies, a great question to ask is, what do you think this means? That is a great question. What do you think this means? A horrible question to ask in a Bible study is, what does this mean to you? Who cares what it means to me? Who cares? What did God intend when he had it written? Because if God says, that's not what I meant, then it's an invalid interpretation, correct? And so we want to figure out, what does 1 John mean? mean? What is the interpretation? And we use um, historical and grammatical and contextual clues to help us interpret uh, what was being written. It's harder for us because we're 2,000 years later, right? And it's in a different language and a different history uh, that we don't know so well. Uh, we, we guess at it. Uh, so much of Paul's writing in the New Testament is, is just matter of fact. He just lays it out uh, like an instructional guide. Uh, he is very logical in his outlines and approach. Paul thinks like an engineer. Here, John is an artist. He is crafting this sermon. The truth John conveys is no less important or no less authoritative than Paul's writings. But John uses prose and rhythm in his writing, uh, and we should be in, and it should be interpreted with that in mind. Because of that, 1 John is hard to outline. His writing is more free-flowing. It ebbs and flows. Uh, he doesn't just want a reasoned response, although there is reasoning used in his writing. John is also looking for an emotional response to God's truth. We are told very quickly in the book of 1 John the purpose John had for writing this letter to the churches in Asia Minor 
present-day Western Turkey. Look at me at with uh, look with me at First John one verse three. <clears throat> like I said, it's towards the end of the New Testament. First uh, John is has more chapters than Second or Third John. Second and Third John are short, one chapter. So as you're flipping through, I don't know if you'll see Second or Third John if you flip too quick. Uh, but it's good just to kind of start at the end and, and work your way forward, and you'll find First John. Look at 1 John 1, 3. It says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The purpose for writing 1 John is to make fellowship possible with John and all those who witness the teachings and perfections of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you can, can read it. I'm having a difficult time on the, on the black TV. It showed up so well on my computer screen. Uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll fix it a little bit if you, if you can't read this title slide. Uh, but this 1 John is, is all about fellowship. Fellowship is the key word for 1 John. The purpose for writing is to make fellowship possible with John and all those who witness the teachings and perfections of Jesus Christ who is the one who makes fellowship with the Father for all eternity possible. For the believer, eternal fellowship with the Father is more than a possibility. It is our eternal reality. Now, there is difficulty. Uh, so this is what this sermon is, is the, the reality of joyful fellowship forever. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning, and that is the purpose of the writing is to help us to understand and recognize the reality of joyful fellowship forever. Because there is a difficulty for fellowship. There is a difficulty. I, I went on YouTube and I wrote in church fights. And there were too many for me to look at. It's a problem when the police get called to a church. That's the first sign something might not be going well. And it happens. There is coming a time, we're told, in a twinkling of an eye, when all believers will be translated when Christ returns for us. Look at this. In 1 Corinthians, it, it tells us this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed the victory is secured now but the victory will be fully realized when Christ comes for us and calls us to himself to the place he has prepared for us before the time where we will be changed the corruptible for the incorruptible, the perishable for the imperishable, we can struggle in our fellowship. In the future, joyful, eternal fellowship is our reality. In the present, sin gets in the way of our fellowship. Now, what do we mean by fellowship? There are two aspects of fellowship. The first is unity. In Jesus' high priestly prayer before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus prayed for the following, prayed the following for all believers. The disciples who were with him in the moment, 
and for all of those in the future that would believe in Jesus as their Savior. Here's what Jesus, believer, here is what he prayed for us. He prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does Jesus pray for the believers? He prays for unity for all believers. The extent of the unity that Jesus has in mind is the same degree of unity between himself and God the Father. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and yet they are one. The same in perfection, the same in glory, the same in purpose. And that's the second aspect of fellowship, is the idea of partnership. Fellowship is not a Christian buzzword that means Christian party, or even eating together. Although let's not discount the benefits of shared meals. By necessity and by choice, the early church ate together frequently. But fellowship means partnership. Now, careful, I'm, I'm going to get a little nerdy here for a moment. Uh, there is a famous work called Fellowship of the Rings. Right? I told you I was about to get nerdy. Some people are real excited that I'm talking about Tolkien. And other people are like, Tolk what? Uh, Tolkien's famous series is called The Lord of the Rings. The first book in that series is called Fellowship of the Ring. In that story, nine characters come together in partnership to destroy the ring that aims to rule them all. The Fellowship of the Ring was not a story about a potluck where dwarves, hobbits, humans, and elves bring their favorite food to share with each other. That would be a boring story. Uh, the fellowship existed for a purpose, to work together to accomplish an agreed-upon task. God has not called us to go to Mordor to destroy a magical ring, like Tolkien's story. God has called us together to fulfill great commission objectives. Here is the partnership, the purpose of the partnership. Go, therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is our purpose. We are to work uh, more than just cooperatively with one another, uh, or we are, we are to work more so that together so that we can cooperatively achieve this God-given task. We are to work with complete unity in the closest possible partnership with God and with each other. We are in partnership with one another. We are to be in partnership with all those believers before us who gave their lives in the furtherance of the gospel. We are to be in partnership with Christ, who gave the marching orders to make disciples of all nations and who gave his life to pay the price of sin that sets us free. We are to be in partnership with God the Father who sent his Son to save us. Can you place a monetary value on that opportunity for partnership? Many do. I would say most do. Perhaps all of us have at one time or another. That is the problem. 
My reality is joyful fellowship for all eternity, but right now I often detour from that reality. Joyful fellowship with God and all those saved by his grace is my destination, but I veer off. I get distracted by detours on my way to eternal fellowship, eternal partnership. It has come to my notice that I'm not always easy to live with. I get angry when I'm hungry. And you know what they call that? Hangry. I get hangry. There was a, a time, short time, where my wife packed me snacks to keep me more tolerable, like a mother will do for a toddler to keep them from throwing fits in public. At first it made me mad that she felt compelled to do that, because in my mind the issue wasn't me being upset that I was hungry, the issue was morons were doing moronic things, right? Especially when I'm driving. I had a right to be agitated by agitators. But after having a couple of cookies, I determined to get on with life. What did it do to get upset, right? <laughs> people are not always easy to be around. And I'm people. And that makes joyful fellowship difficult. The churches that John is writing to were stressed by some serious issues. They would have had some sleepless nights as they thought about their local church. There were uncomfortable meetings. Sides were being taken on different issues. Joyful fellowship would seem in that moment to be unattainable. Imagine going to church each week expecting a fight. Now, good people can have disagreements. Good people can also fall into sin and approach disagreements with sinful attitudes. Sometimes a person can insert themselves into a church and they do not have everybody's best interest at heart. Sometimes there are agitators that only want to stir things up. They are bullies that are intent on ruining joyful fellowship. And they distract the church from pursuing great commission objectives. They give a black eye to the church and obscure the glory of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2nd and 3rd John, we get a glimpse of what was happening in the church that was the cause for John to write 1st John. In 2nd John 7 verses uh, second in 2nd John verses 7 through 11, we get this and you can turn there if you're already in 1st John, it's just a couple of pages. Uh, short book, 2nd and 3rd John, both of them. Uh, but we get to the the crux of the issue and the purpose for writing. It says in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Here's the instruction. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked, wicked works. False teachers were traveling from church to church, teaching that Jesus was not really a man. They teach that the word did not become flesh and dwell among us. That is a heretical teaching that threatens our very understanding 
of a substitutionary atonement. If Jesus Christ is not a man, then his death would not wash away mankind's sin. John instructs a particular church that was welcoming these teachers that professed a level of authority, and these teachers were leading people in the church away from the truth. His instruction was for the church to not welcome them and not provide for their needs. Supporting a false teacher puts a person in fellowship with a false teacher, partnership. And they become a partner with a false teacher that is destroying lives with the intention of deceiving people straight to hell. This seems obvious, but in practice it can be confusing. False teachers never introduce themselves as false teachers. They are cunning and manipulative. If the elders of this local church come out against the false teacher that they had been that had been welcomed previously and accepted by some in the church, imagine how uncomfortable it would be when that church meets together. Or the next time a false teacher is discovered and the elders decide that the false teacher should not be accepted or receive hospitality from, from the church, imagine the accusations that will come against the church. I can already hear it. What an unloving church. This church is so judgmental. Joyful fellowship forever would not seem like a reality when you're dealing with that issue. When you look at 3 John, here's another issue. Uh, 3 John, verses 5 through 10. It says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified <coughs> to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Kind of the opposite issue in 3 John, isn't it? Uh, that there was this individual who, uh, who was a bully and, uh, and telling people to not greet and support true teachers of the word of God. And he would go so far as to kick people out of church if they did show hospitality to true teachers of the Bible. Hospitality is also, then, the issue in 3 John. John commends the church for the hospitality they have shown to those who are teaching the truth, and he encourages them in their hospitality and partnership to traveling teachers. John feels compelled to encourage them because they are being discouraged by Diotrephes, who sounds like a real jerk. He is a bully. He doesn't recognize the authority of John. He only recognizes his own authority, and he has outlawed supporting faithful teachers of the word of God by kicking people out who supported these teachers. In that situation, joyful fellowship forever would not seem possible, would it? Perhaps now we see the motivation John had in writing 1 John, particularly verse 3, when he wrote, That which we have seen, heard, proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Joyful fellowship forever is our eternal reality that we can experience in the present. We can experience joyful fellowship in the present.
Now, the goal of Fellowship Forever, what is the outcome? What is the goal of Fellowship Forever? Basically, I'm asking, why bother? We'll look at verse 4 of what John wrote in 1 John 1.4. He said, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says that fellowship, partnership, unity with fellow believers, and, and that all that have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, would complete His joy. The apostles so shared the heart of Christ for His people that their own joy was bound up in the spiritual well-being of those to whom they ministered. If the readers retained their true fellowship with God and with His apostles, no one would be any happier than John himself. John Wolvert and Roy Zuck uh, wrote that in the Bible knowledge or the Bible knowledge commentary. Now, what is the joy of fellowship forever? What is the joy of fellowship forever? Fellowship, partnership, and unity takes time and effort to achieve. It takes effort and time to achieve joyful fellowship within the body of Christ. I'm going to give an observation that may or may not be reality. It's simply what I have seen. I'm finding it to be true for me, and I have seen it in others through the years of ministry. And here's this truth. The older my kids get, the less I feel the need for friendship outside of my immediate family. Before kids, or when the kids were little, we actively looked for opportunities to socialize with other adults. My wife needed adult conversation, and I just wasn't cutting it. I see a lot of wives looking at their husbands, nodding in agreement. As the kids have gotten older, they have provided friendship and partnership. I get all the social interaction I need without having to leave my home. There is a danger in that. One, they might all decide to live someplace else. I grew up in Michigan. Mary grew up in Kansas. We are not living in Michigan or Kansas. We are in South Louisiana. The bigger danger of ignoring the need for fellowship outside of the home and in the local church is that I am not partnering with others to achieve Great Commission objectives, which means I am wasting my life. Believer, if we are not ordering our life around obedience to God's command to reach the lost for Christ, disciple, to disciple believers and to teach believers to obey all that God has commanded, then we are wasting our life. Now, how do individuals in a local church body grow in their obedience to Christ? The answer is, with each other. The spiritual gifts and natural abilities that all believers have are how, are how God builds his church. There is not even one of us that is unnecessary. We do more together. God's word also makes it clear that the result is full joy. A believer who ignores fellowship with their local church will never experience true joy in this life. They also affect their eternity, not in a loss of salvation, but a loss of eternal rewards, which are used to the praise and glory of God in eternity. Neglecting eternal investment can never produce earthly happiness. There is a French phrase in eating, because the French like to eat. They start a great meal with something called an amuse-bouche. An amuse-bouche. Bouche means mouth. 
right? So this is amusement for the mouth. This pre-meal snack is meant to awaken your senses for the meal that is to come. It is not a meal in itself. You are not meant to walk away from the table and say, I'm satisfied, don't want any more. There is a whole meal still to come. Believer, don't be satisfied by the amusements of this world. There is a whole meal still to come. Partnership in eternal pursuits in obedience to Christ is what completes our joy. Now, what is the basis of fellowship forever? What is the basis of our fellowship? First, let's start out by stating what it is not. Our fellowship is not based on our similar upbringing. Now, our family has gotten in trouble because of that. Uh, I am sure that there are places in the Midwest where children were instructed to say sir and ma'am to authority figures. But I never lived in those places, neither has my wife. We didn't train our kids to do that because that is not a thing people did where we grew up. Uh, Politeness was important, but in that culture, politeness wasn't determined by the use of sir and ma'am. Now, how many of you this morning was absolutely trained to say sir and ma'am as a means by which you were allowed to continue to stay alive? All right? Yeah. Uh, So we have different upbringings, different habits, different ways of talking. Uh, We have a few people in our church here from New Jersey. There are stereotypes of people from New Jersey, correct? There was a successful TV show that made a lot of money from those stereotypes called Jersey Shore. I have never watched a minute of that TV show, and in fact, I wished I hadn't seen the, the, uh, the promos for that show. Uh, I feel dumber for having been exposed for just those few seconds. Some of us grew up with means. Some of us grew up poor. We have in our own little church Yankees, Midwesterners, Cajuns, Southern Bells, and folks from the parish. Now, I used to not know what parish that was. (laughs) Somebody would say, I'm from the parish. And I thought they meant they were from the parish government and were here on official parish business. Uh, And I was confused when they would say that. Just recently, our family found out something. Uh, We figured out what people meant when they said the bridge, that something was by the bridge. Mary and I gave a kid on the wrestling team a ride after a wrestling meet, and he asked us to take him to the Walmart right before you get to the bridge. I saw my wife's confusion, and I was excited because I had just figured out what the bridge was a few weeks earlier. I told her what was commonly understood when people said the bridge. She asked me why that was called the bridge when there were so many other bridges. And I'm guessing it was because it might have been the first bridge in St. Tammany Parish. I don't know. Uh, Similar upbringing and culture is not the basis for our fellowship. The next similarity that is not a biblical basis for fellowship, but is commonly used as a basis for fellowship, is the similarity of preferences. The church can be thought of as a religious Burger King whose motto at one time was, have it your way. Many people bring that expectation to their local church. It is not good for everyone in the church, including the pastor, to not have, a pastor, everybody in the church should not have everything in the church be the way they desire based on personal preferences. 
it is bad for anybody to have all of their preferences met in a local church. If personal preferences become the basis for fellowship, then a person never has to concern themselves with the need and preferences of others. When a child behaves that way, we correctly call them a spoiled brat. There are many pastors, many church leaders, and many congregants in the church at large that think like spoiled brats and the expectations that they have that personal preferences should be the basis of Christian fellowship. The reason that personal preferences should not be the basis for fellowship is that it keeps a church from achieving great commission objectives. A church will only disciple a person that has the exact same preferences that is held by the rest of the congregation. If you dress like them, uh, like the same style of music as them, and think like them, then you can be a part. It shouldn't be that way. Everyone has personal preferences. That is not a sin. Holding personal preferences to the same degree of importance as they would to the word of God, that is sin. Personal preferences should never be the basis for Christian fellowship. So what is the basis for fellowship? It's at the very beginning of the book of 1 John. John wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we all proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The basis for Christian fellowship is Jesus Christ. We don't need to have the same upbringing. We don't need to have the same background. We don't need to have the same preferences. All we need is the same Savior. John proclaims to the believers, reading his prose, that what he is proclaiming is what has always been proclaimed. John and the apostles were eyewitnesses to, to the word of life. They were eyewitnesses concerning the word of life. They saw it with their own eyes. The word of life was brought into their presence. They saw the word of life. The word of life is eternal life. Eternal life was with the Father and was made visible to John and the apostles. The eternal life is Jesus Christ. That is why joyful fellowship forever is our reality, because Jesus is eternal. Our eternal life is in him and the Father. Our fellowship together is tied to our common salvation in Jesus Christ. Just as his death was sufficient for our sins to be forgiven, his death and resurrection are sufficient for our eternal fellowship. Nothing else is necessary. As we go through this book, we will discover what detours our eternal joyful fellowship and how to over overcome those issues to get back on the road to the eternal joy our Savior has made possible. It is then that our joy will be made complete. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word uh, warns us of those issues that will cause detours in our pursuit of what you have guaranteed, eternal joyful fellowship.
and that it is not done through the, the fellowship is not the basis of that fellowship is is not on on upbringing on uh, on preferences on on backgrounds on socioeconomic status on experience just the one experience of trusting Jesus Christ for salvation that he is the basis of our fellowship uh, and because of that we we know uh, the reality of joyful fellowship forever, but only because of Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen.